This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Wednesday, February the 21st, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, Air Canada is offering lanyards to travelers with invisible disabilities. Kelly Braun Johnson reacts to the Sunflower Initiative. Also, volunteering benefits you and the people you help, and Kamozi shares her experience. And Saskatchewan is dealing with overcrowding in hospitals. Journalist John Lepke has an update. That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. Thank you for stopping by wherever you may be out there in listener land and the viewer vortex. Let's begin with the top story of the day. The federal government is reducing the carbon rebate for small and medium-sized businesses. Mia Rabson has the story. Small businesses will share $623 million in the coming fiscal year to offset the cost of carbon pricing. Last year, the allocated amount was 50% higher when the carbon price itself was almost 20% lower. The change comes so Ottawa can increase the carbon rebate top-up paid to rural households from 10 to 20%. Dan Kelly of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business says businesses were already getting far less back from carbon pricing than they pay, and this will make that even worse. Mia Rabson, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. Another federal story for you. The government is considering options to improve online safety. Naira Ahmed takes a closer look. The new ombudsperson is part of what one senior official says is the latest draft of the government's long-awaited legislation to better protect Canadians on the Internet, especially young people. Ottawa is also exploring setting up a new regulator whose role would be to make sure that online platforms are complying with federal law. Speaking to the Canadian press on the condition of anonymity, the source says the government hopes to release details of the new bill by April. Online safety experts have been pressuring the governing Liberals for months for more information about their plan, which they say is long overdue. Naira Ahmed, the Canadian Press. Going across the Atlantic for another economic story, farmers across Europe continue to protest. Inez de la Coutura has the latest. In Greece, thousands of farmers riding their tractors up to Athens Central Square, parking them outside the Greek parliament in their biggest protest yet over rising costs of living. In Poland, farmers blockaded the border with Ukraine, even opening railway carriages to let grain spill out as they protest what they claim is unfair competition. In recent weeks, farmers have also protested in France, Germany, Belgium, the Netherlands, Spain and Italy. Inez de la Quatera, ABC News, at the Foreign Desk. Coming back to North America, here's a financial story that will not surprise you. American casinos raked in record profits last year. Lisa Dwyer doubles down with this report. New figures from the gambling industry show America's commercial casinos won more than $66 billion from gamblers in 2023, the industry's best year ever. The American Gaming Association says that's 10% higher than in 2022, which itself was a record-setting year. 
When revenue figures from tribal-owned casinos are released later this year, they are expected to show that overall casino gambling brought in close to $110 billion to casino operators in 2023. In-person gambling remains the bread and butter of the industry. Slot machines brought in over $35 billion, up 3.8%, and table games brought in over $10 billion, up 3.5%. I'm Lisa Dwyer. So, number one, it should not surprise you that the house always win. Casinos are a profitable business. Las Vegas does not look the way Las Vegas looks without casinos having the advantage at the tables and the slots. But the second thing to consider about just the raw number of the increase in profits, it's that there has been a strong movement to legalize gambling in way more states across the country. So it's not simply a raw number of profits and Proving or somehow the odds of blackjack changing, it's that more and more states operate commercial casinos. So sometimes you got to dig just a little bit deeper. But the overall conversation around the expansion of gambling, whether it be north of the border or south of the border, continues to be a fascinating one. Cannabis, gambling, it seems that it's the Wild West out there, while things like tobacco and alcohol are going the other way. Always interesting to consider the role of government regulation and vice. Let's get to the daily polls at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. On Facebook, on Tuesday, you were asked about GPS tracking software. Do you use GPS tracking software to share your location with friends and family? 0% of you said all the time, 13% of you said when traveling, and 87% of you said never. I will never give out my location. I protect my data, darn it. Let's get to today's daily poll. American Airlines is raising fees for checked bags. Ed Donahue explains. The fee for checking a bag on an American domestic flight goes from $30 to $35 online, $40 if checking in at the airport. A second bag will cost $45. American last raised bag fees in 2018. American also announced starting with tickets issued May 1st. Customers will have to buy tickets directly from the airline or its partner carriers or from preferred online travel agencies if they want to earn points on the Advantage Loyalty Program. Corporate travelers won't be affected. The changes are part of a long shift by airlines away from using travel agents and paying them commissions and bringing ticket sales in-house. I'm Ed Donahue. So that story prompts today's daily poll at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. And it's a simple one. How often do you check your bag when flying? Always, sometimes, never, or only when I have to? I put that fourth option in there because that's sometimes my feeling. Only if I really need to, I'm going away for a long time. I'm a big-boned fellow, rather rotundra, so it's difficult to get all the stuff I need into a carry-on bag, so only when I have to. But if I'm being totally frank with you this morning... I actually do kind of like checking my bag. There are different circumstances that I'm going to consider, whether it's uh, connecting flights or do I know the airport well, where I'm landing, blah, 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 blah. A million different factors. But I really like the feeling of just sliding my bag down a conveyor belt and not having to worry about it or schlep it around the airport. I can just have my little school bag or my little satchel and walk around and feel, 
generally unencumbered, no fighting for overhead space. So put me in the sometimes category, and if it was a little bit easier to do, I, I find Pearson Airport, here's me taking my weekly swipe at Pearson Airport in Toronto, I find it very confusing, the process of where I'm supposed to go precisely to give my checked bag. So if it was even easier, I might be an always person. I might I might flash the cash to do it. So, so put me down as sometimes, and if I really could, I would be an always. Alex Smythe, you're a seasoned traveler. What say you? Yeah, I'm, I'm an always uh, guy, Dave, because I always want to bring way too much uh, clothes and items on my trips. Usually it's always far more than I need, but I always like to be prepared. I yeah, guess that's just three kind of extra, scout, three extra, scouting me. Three extra pairs of underwear. Yeah. Even though yeah, you don't exactly. need that much underwear, you don't want to run out of underwear. Yeah, exactly. And then it's like the shirts, extra socks. Oh, an extra pair of pants in case they get dirty. Maybe it's an extra pair of shoes oh, or boots, yep. depending mm -hmm. on where you're going. So, um, yeah, I, I'm always uh, loading up on the clothes and, and things like that. So as a result, I need that extra space. I I wish I could be a lot more compact in my traveling. I, I think part of it is the nature of the traveling that I do. And so... When I am going away, when I am getting on a plane, it's usually at least a week, if not longer. So I find that it's hard to pack a week's worth of clothing and essentials into a carry-on size mm -hmm. uh, bag. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you mentioned, too, the idea of, you know, I don't want to have to carry my stuff around. Like, I did it once, and it wasn't really all that pleasurable. So and, and what it, it's and, peace of mind. And what about this? What about this idea? Now, I know in Canada, it's a little more expensive than 30 or $35. I know it's creeping up on some airlines closer to 50 at this point to check your bag. But let's go under the theory that you don't have a travel-sized toothpaste. You have particular shampoo needs, and you don't have a travel-sized shampoo. You're still mm -hmm. using shaving cream, although uh, I've made the switch to moisturize and I'm much happier that I did. But let's just say you've got all these cosmetics that you need, especially if you're traveling for business. You and I mm -hmm. both used to travel quite a bit for doing television shoots and documentary shoots, and you can't look like a schlub on TV, although I do my best every day to look schlub-ish. You have to have this stuff with you when you're traveling. So all of a sudden, if you've paid, let's call it 20 to $30 for a bunch of different travel cosmetics, wouldn't, have been any, wouldn't it have been nicer just to check a bag? Oh, absolutely. And I think I, I the only time I've ever actually had an issue in terms of my bag, because I've had it once where my bag was overweight, was when I was traveling for postcards to go out to Alberta in, in the winter. And that's, you know, the whole other uh, kind of bag of beans, because you have to pack for heavy winter essentials. <laughs> yeah. you're, you're prepared for ah. minus 30. You got to prepare for everything. So, like, everything weighs as twice as much. Everything is twice as as big and bulky and things like that. So, I had to be very creative at the airport, pulling something out, putting on a winter coat, putting on boots that <laughs> I was trying to avoid wearing. But I made it work. I got my bag underweight, but it, it was a tight fit. Laura, I think I saw you smirking a little bit as I was complaining about the uh, cosmetics that I might have to bring as a man when I travel. I've had women in my life tell me, you don't know half the pain, you jabroni. Oh, no, you had to buy a toothpaste. Whereas some women, they're like, I literally, can't, like, I have a skincare routine and none of this is checkable. 
Oh, no, I definitely don't fall into that category. <laughs> uh, I went for three weeks last summer and just had a carry-on backpack no, the whole time. And, no, and I don't know what, I can't remember what cosmetics, maybe a little tube of toothpaste for like the first day or something, but I just used the cosmetics that were there, or if I needed something, I picked it up on my trip. So I'm a big fan of carry-on travel. Um, I only check a bag if I have to. Now, having to might be that I've bought too many souvenirs. That's kind of the only scenario where I'm thinking I might have to check a bag but I when you were talking about that feeling of being unencumbered at the airport I Ugh. totally agree I get that I do also like that feeling um, but I'm also thinking about the trip itself and I don't want to have to be navigating through a city maybe there's cobblestones on and off trains or subways mm -hmm. carrying around a suitcase so uh, especially like being legally blind anything I can do to make life simpler I'm all about that reducing a step for traveling um, now I will say I'm a big fan of uh, backpack carry-ons over a wheelie suitcase because it just allows for that totally hands-free experience and I, I say you guys got to learn to do some laundry when you're traveling because there's you know when you're going for a shoot it's a, a little more complicated I've had that experience as well where you're just maybe working working all all day and you have to look a certain way and there's no chance to do laundry but for recreational travel just bring some of those laundry strips you can uh, bring them in your carry-on and just uh, find a laundromat or get an Airbnb with some laundry and uh, yeah, you're good to go. I mean, don't get me started on Airbnbs. Like I, 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 I will, I will go on my rants about how I prefer hotels over Airbnbs uh, through and through in a gargantuan way. And Laura, it doesn't sound like much of a vacation if I have to go spend three hours at a laundromat mm -hmm. doing my laundry. Oh, no, I don't agree. I think it can be part of the whole experience of the city. But if you're going away for three weeks, it's really not, uh, to me, that big of a of a deal to have to do laundry partway through. But as I said, you know, when I did go away for three weeks, we made sure that uh, at least once a week we had an Airbnb that had laundry in okay. it so we could okay. wash some of our clothes. But Planning. I mean, I've washed like lots that. of stuff out in bathroom sinks and things like that as well when I'm traveling. Uh, well, you know, I, I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from Laura on this front. Laura, I will say I went to your neck of the woods a couple summers ago for a bachelor party and it was on one of these ultra low cost airlines where you're not even allowed a carry on it's that you you can bring a personal item nothing bigger than a regular sized backpack and that was the greatest endeavor that I've ever had in terms of packing just enough to make it through this bachelor party weekend and accepting the reality that if anything I spilled on myself well too darn bad for the people sitting next to me on the plane coming home <laughs> Yep, you gotta you gotta you gotta cut it down in terms of your vanity, you know. Like, and it's easier with summer travel than winter. Oh, but as yeah. I say, on the cosmetics department, it's pretty low low maintenance for ah. me. I'm using a lot of hotel shampoo or whatever's supplied, and just uh, yeah, maybe you've got one sweater for the whole trip or whatever, but. It works for me. Yeah, I mean, that trip, the only cosmetic was deodorant. That, that was We were really going for efficiency on that one through and through. Okay, I want to share with you guys my father's theory on carry-on versus checked luggage. My father is a very smart man who traveled a ton for business in his life. It was. It's only really in the last 20 or 25 years that the notion of charging for a checked bag has popped up from airlines. And he has been on this pretty much since the inception of that policy because what happened was people started cramming the overhead bins and the seats with carry-on luggage. Nobody wanted to pay the fee, which takes more time to board and deboard de or deplane the airplane. My father always said, 
what they should do instead of charging for checked bags is they should charge for carry-on bags and give you free checked bags. People traveling for business or people wanting the control will pay for the privilege to carry their stuff on, and everybody else who's not in a rush when they land will happily go to the carousel. Laura, your reaction to my father's plan? I do understand that logic, and I think that some of the carry-on luggage has gotten a little bit excessive. I think that that policy would work out poorly for someone like me who's both a budget traveler and likes to do carry-on. Now, I'm not talking like a giant over-the-limit carry-on here. Um, Yeah, I don't don't know. I think... I think, yeah, that's not going to work out well for me. Okay, all right. So maybe I, cool, cool with the idea, but not working out for you as an individual. I, I feel that. I get that vibe. Alex, I think I've shared that theory with you from my father before, whether it be on the air or off the air. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I love the idea, uh, you know, and, and part of it is because I am someone who, you know, A, checks bags, but I also understand the issue that's trying to be solved with it is the fact that you got literally everyone uh, who is trying to bring in not just one carry-on bag, but sometimes it's like two big carry-on bags. Like, it, it's a different story if it's just one wheeled suitcase. I've seen, like, there's two wheeled suitcase and a laptop bag. It's like, okay, at a certain point, you should be forced to check it. So I, I like the idea of that, that where you, you kind of force people, hey, if you want that convenience, if you want that uh, ease of, of uh, transferring on and off the plane, you have to pay for that, whereas you can just put it for free underneath, because they already do that at the gate when they need mm-hmm, to fill, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a, a ease some of the burden in the cabin to say, hey, we'll check it for free. So it's, it's not unheard of, so I, I'm all in favor of it, Dave. All right, rock and roll. Greg Brown will be very happy this morning. Alex, Laura, thank you. Talk to you both later in the hour. In the meantime, you can vote on the poll at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, at Accessible Media on X. You can send the show an email, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone and give the show a ring. 1-866-509-4545. Coming up next, it's the Regional News Update. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio at amiplus.ca. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. In just a couple of minutes, Alex Smythe will have the weather story of the day. But first, here's the regional news update. Starting in British Columbia, the federal government will be adding another $2 billion to the B.C. government's plan to build more middle-income rental housing. The B.C. Builds Plan aims to fast-track affordable rental developments on government, community, nonprofit, and underused land. Here's what Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had to say. This is a demonstration of how you build homes for people to live in not just to pad investor portfolios. BC also recognized that this housing crisis is urgent, so as part of this program, they're going to speed up construction, cutting timelines by more than half. Trudeau describes the type of housing being built. 
These will be units of all sizes, including up to three or four bedrooms, the kind of places where families can grow and they can call home. And they'll be made available to families based on their income on a community by community basis, truly targeted for the middle class. Premier David Eby took the opportunity to address interest rates and the Bank of Canada. Rent and mortgage payments were the two leading categories of cost increase for British Columbians. Driven by Bank of Canada policy, I continue to try to drive home the message to the governor uh, that we will not get inflation under control in British Columbia without addressing the fact that high interest rates are driving higher uh, housing costs for people. The Prime Minister will make another housing announcement in Edmonton today. Over to Ontario, the Mayor of Belleville says he's disappointed that the province has not committed to funding a local detox centre and a hub for social health care services. Neil Ellis requested $2 million from the province after a wave of overdoses a few weeks ago. Here's what Ellis had to say. It's time for the province to step up, take responsibility, and act on the crisis that is in front of all communities. Addiction and unhoused, the face of this is in the majority of all cities in our province and across Canada. The province has offered $200,000 of support. That's your look at the regional news. Alex Smythe will be by with the weather report in just a minute. But first, here's Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your morning business minute. Canada's main stock index gave a little back yesterday as the nation's annual inflation rate dipped to 2.9% last month. Toronto's TSX index lost 38 points to close at 21,217. New York's Dow Jones average gave back 64 points and the Nasdaq dropped 144. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index lost 101 points and our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 73.90 cents US. First, Quantum Minerals is reporting a fourth quarter loss of $1.45 billion U.S. as it warns its ability to continue operating could be in doubt. The Toronto headquartered mining company says it needs to shore up its balance sheet to stay operational in light of the shutdown of its Cobre Panama mine after Panama's Supreme Court ruled that a 20-year concessions agreement was unconstitutional. And Toronto-based Zoomer Media has bought digital media publisher Curiosity for $5 million. From the Canadian Press Business Desk. I'm Karen Rebo. Thank you very much, Karen. From the world of business to the world of weather, let's bring in Alex Smythe. Alex, there's another storm brewing in Atlantic Canada. Yeah, unfortunately, Dave, uh, there's not really a lot of uh, a, a break for, for Atlantic Canada as another system is set to impact the region this week. So uh, this system will start to uh, kind of move into the area Thursday afternoon where Nova Scotia's uh, south coast will be the first to really experience it. Halifax is set to receive a few centimeters of snow before the system passes through. Where it really starts to get dicey is when it moves over to Newfoundland and Labrador because when it collides, this warm uh, air system collides with the cold air already in the region, it's going to bring a lot more snow and ice to the area. So we're looking at 10 centimeters of snow in Newfoundland along with at least 10 hours of ice accumulation. So when it's kind of right around that freezing point, that's where you get the dangerous freezing rain and snow mixture. There are quite a few concerns around power outages in Newfoundland and Labrador. And 
the one thing that I can say is maybe a positive is currently the storm track is not 100% confirmed. There is a chance that maybe the direction does alter slightly. Maybe the impact is not as strong, but currently as it stands, uh, there's going to be uh, a really rough weekend ahead for folks over in Newfoundland. Alex, thank you for this. Talk to you a little bit later in the show. That's Alex Smythe at the Weather Desk coming up after the break. Volunteering benefits you and the people around you. And Kamozi shares her experience. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Volunteering has so many benefits. It goes beyond just the singular act of kindness. It builds communities and connects you to the people around you. Anne Camozzi has been a lifelong volunteer and is a disability rights advocate based in Nova Scotia. Hey, good morning, Anne. Nice to chat with you again. Good morning, Dave. It's great to be here. And I want to start with the why. Why are you so passionate about volunteering? Well, the risk of sounding like the old lady on the show, I, I've been volunteering my whole life, which is a long time. I started volunteering at age 16. And honestly, it's enriched my life so much. And um, I like to think, you know, made a contribution to community. So I just really believe in it as a lifelong ethic. And I'm hoping to pass that on to, you know, my grandchildren, for example. I, I, uh, I'm in a similar boat to you. I've maybe been a little bit less of an active volunteer just as my career got very busy. It was tough to be on boards or go to a ton of events, but I'm tr really trying to find ways to give back. Uh, I actually just agreed to be a mentor for Fighting Blindness Canada to uh, mentor young people, which uh, I think is probably uh, something that I'd, that I'd be very good at, that I can offer some guidance. So that's, like, that, that's something that I'm sort of drilling down on here this year, trying to figure out where and how I can give back in a way that is not limited by my disability, but can maybe offer something to other people with disabilities. So where do I land here? What are some of the other numbers around volunteering in Canada? Well, first of all, congratulations for taking that on. And, and, and you're absolutely right. I'll talk a little bit more about the whole idea of disability, but the numbers are a little discouraging, I think, because um, although we're a, a, a country of volunteers, I think in 2018, over 24 million Canadians volunteered, which is really 79% of Canadians. But the change that's happening is something that really needs to, I think, be addressed. My generation, the boomers and the mature population, the, the one ahead of me, we're, we're big time formal volunteers. We sit on boards, we dedicate a lot more hours. For example, the hours contributed by people born um, between 1918 and 1945 was something like 222 hours a year. Wow. And, and, um, and baby boomers, 197. Now, some of that is related to the fact that so 
Some of us are semi-retired. We're not inactive, but I'm willing to bet that when we were 40, we were also volunteering that much. When you compare that with millennials and iGens, 78% are volunteering, but very much less time. Um, we're talking about uh, 99 hours compared to 200 hours. And, and, and the important distinction is that it's informal volunteering versus formal volunteering. So you were saying you didn't have time to sit on boards, and that seems to be a common thing, whereas I'm on like two or three boards, and I've always been on two or three boards. And and I think our generation, we that was the way we volunteered. And it's great to do informal volunteering, but the problem is, all these volunteer, nonprofit, charitable organizations all require formal um, board organizations in order to work. And so, like I was talking to a young person in her 30s, and she was saying, well, I don't have time. I can't go on boards, but I can post things on Instagram. I can post things on social media. And then she proceeded to try and convince me that I should watch all three seasons of Ted Lasso for the second time. And I was like, you don't have time to be on a board, but you've got time to watch three seasons or Ted Lasso three times. So I think it's a different in values. You know, when I, when I, my kids were little and I was working, we didn't have Netflix at night. We had go to the board meeting. It's mm -hmm. a, it's a different mm -hmm. world. You know, it's a, it's a very different world. Yeah. I, and, and I, I'm going to push back on you just a little bit here. Right. Cause, cause I think you, yeah. I think you and I are in alignment in regards to like the positive ethic of volunteering, but yeah. I'm also deeply understanding of people who are trying to work two or three jobs to like pay rent. So, so I understand the Netflix example that you're giving, but people deserve downtime as well. So I, I don't mean to push back on this completely, but I, but I don't want people to feel judged for not engaging in the, the extent of volunteering that might've been a traditional generational expectation and fair enough because we could get by and pay our mortgage with one job but i th i think it's not just a time thing it's a perception that people don't want to sit in a meeting and contribute to a board and i mm. i would really like to see more board involvement from younger generations because the food banks have to operate. The nonprofit affordable housing societies have to operate. And most importantly, they need the voice of disabled people on yeah, those boards. Yeah. And and if we don't have our voices on those boards, our needs don't get met. And I really think it's important to reconsider, you know, commitments to how you contribute to organizations. And, you know, with Zoom now, a lot of board meetings are done virtually anyway. So I, I just think it's a perception of, of how we contribute. Mm. And I, I guess I want to educate a little bit about the importance of making that formal contribution. And maybe the Netflix example is a bad one. I'm not trying to hit on that generation. For sure. <laughs> millennials and Gen Z get dumped on enough, and it will not stand on this show hosted by a geriatric millennial. Uh, and but I think when you talk about the, the formal nature of volunteering, that's where skills development comes into play, and that's maybe one of the hidden benefits, right? That you and I can understand why raising money through a bottle drive or going out and being part of a, a crafts fair or take your pick, whatever it might be. Is, is something you can do and you feel good and it's kind of an electrical reaction in your brain. But there is a skills development that comes from sitting on boards or that more formal volunteering. Well, not just skills development. I mean, 
networking, you know, job, uh, job leadership skills, um, getting a different job happened to me through working as a volunteer. Um, it enhances, you know, your interpersonal skills. It makes you less lonely. When I first moved to a new community, the way I met people was volunteering to be on boards. It, it can provide you with a sense of purpose and fulfillment, you know, and it, it, it gives kind of a direction and, 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 and kind of overall theme to your life that is not all about ourselves. Mm. And, and, you know, I feel like in disability and I have a lot of pain and it's important for me to get out of my head about myself. And that's where volunteering has been such an enriching experience for me. I've had fun. And, and then there's that feeling of con- contributing to positively benefiting your community and 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 i think that all those things are what make us more whole as a person and and really important part of life you mentioned the disability side of this and specifically you referenced zoom i do think that in this world i'd be more comfortable sitting on a board cuz it wouldn't be three or four buses to get to a board meeting uh that lasts for 45 minutes and then you just sort of go off into the ether so what's some of your advice about people with disabilities who maybe want to get involved but are feeling a little intimidated for the first step well first of all know your worth Know how important it is to have your voice heard. Your your example, Dave, is a perfect example of a huge benefit to society, being a mentor to somebody. This is a huge role we can play as disabled individuals, especially for those who were born with disabilities to help people who acquire disabilities. So, you know, I think volunteering is looking at your passions. If you're passionate about sports, Think about Special Olympics. I was a Special Olympics volunteer for over 20 years, and they are some of the most wonderful moments of my life being involved in Special Olympics. It was so rewarding. I got way more out of it than I ever put into it. And if if you're worried about how you can like be involved in the actual board, don't be afraid to speak up and ask for accommodations. I found that people are more than willing to always give accommodations. And think about where your interests lie. If you like children, you know, you can volunteer in after school programs. If you have a service dog, you can take the dog to the library. You can you can um, um, work at a shelter. All organizations have paperwork needs. We might not be able to go to a lot of meetings and get out and go about, but we can stuff. If you can stuff envelopes, you can be a volunteer. And if you can't stuff envelopes like me because of my hands, you can find other roles to do. And and really, it's it's all kinds of projects from political projects to teaching to mentoring, to going to seniors' homes. Um, there's such an amazing uh, wealth of places that we can volunteer, and really it's only limited by your own imagination. Um, giving lectures about uh, the realities of your disability, the best ways to treat people in the community. I think um, uh, telephone calls, like we can be wonderful support people mm. on telephone mm. calls. You can get... You know, some of it requires training, but all these organizations do that. I've been thinking about becoming a volunteer for something called Give a Warm Phone Call, which is um, we just call people and say, you know, have a nice day, and I'd probably try and get them painting. Some people are musical, (laughs) you know, they can play music 
at, at, at a senior's home. I know somebody who goes and plays a piano at a senior's home for three hours a week. I think it's like looking at your own skills and saying, you know, how can I use those to help some other people? And then reaching out to organizations in your community. And I think almost all organizations want volunteers. And this is going to seem like a little bit of a sharp turn, but it relates to something that you're typically talking about, which is climate emergency and climate adaptation and preparedness. What's the line that you draw between being able to effectively volunteer and the more frequent climate emergencies that are popping up around the country and around the world? Well, I think it's a a really interesting turn because I think that What the climate emergencies now demand is that we do become involved as volunteers in emergency management. And and that has a couple of layers to it. First of all, after Fiona, the hurricane here in in Atlantic Canada, we were without power and all communications um, in my community for three weeks, just like Prince Edward Island. Some places were three weeks. Uh, CB operators, you know, turned out to be some of the people that were communicating. And many people, some people with disabilities are involved in radio operations. Um, Calling your local emergency management office in your community and asking how you can volunteer, you will be given a role. Most emergency management in Canada is volunteer. People don't realize that. Mm. If you live in Metro Toronto, you have the fire department. But Most communities in Nova Scotia, EMO, which is Emergency Management Office, is volunteer. There are many roles that you can have in terms of telephone trees, communication jobs. I'm working as a volunteer here for our local emergency management office to try and help them understand the needs of people with disabilities. And this is why it's really important to speak up. Um, and become a volunteer. But the other area of climate emergency volunteerism is working for groups that are working on the climate emergency. So like I can't get in the river and help clean it up and do physical things, but I can certainly be on boards and get involved in that way and create written documents and contribute. And I I think it's a role we all, it's, it's an emergency. Yeah. If right? so, if, At two levels. <laughs> yeah. If someone will drive me, I can use my big muscular frame to stack sandbags, but I got to get there first. So someone's got to offer to give me a lift. And thank you for this. Have a lovely day. Always uh, enlightening conversations when you stop by. Thanks so much, Dave. Have a great have a great rest of week. Thank you Take very care. much. That's Anne Camozzi, disability rights advocate in Nova Scotia. Coming up next, North America's premier custom car show is rolling into Winnipeg next week. Community reporter Derek Lackey revs you up for piston ring world of wheels. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Piston Ring World of Wheels is returning to Winnipeg. The 48th Annual Custom Car Show takes place next month. Community reporter Derek Lackey has the details. Hey, good morning, Derek. Good morning, Dave. How's it going? 
Derek, I'm good. Uh, custom cars, eh? So what's going to be shown off here at the Piston Ring World of Wheels? Every year that we hold this event, it's always uh, new, new paint jobs, new vehicles, uh, new concept vehicles. But it's it's always the same. It's grease, it's gas, it's rubber, it's <laughs> wax. It's just walking around enjoying these beautiful pieces of artwork because some of these vehicles are just absolutely amazing. And the owners that have worked on them, it's listening to their artistic skills and the years it's taken to build them from everything from hot rods to custom motorcycles to new age vehicles that have been uh, modified or souped up and then to the new concept cars that are coming out like the, you know all automatic cars and everything so it, it's really one of those those shows that really encompasses something for everyone and if you have ever uh, had an appreciation for vehicles in your lifetime this is the place to go and meet these people hey, derek i know you used to work in the trades were you a gearhead too uh, you know what? I quite enjoy uh, taking things apart. I never quite got as involved into vehicles. Uh, I mean, I did a lot of work when I had a big, uh, I had a big lifted Ram uh, with a roll bar and lights and everything when I was uh, working. So I, I did a lot of my own work and oil changes because you can almost sit up under it once it's lifted. But um, you know, I, I never got into those. But you know, pulling apart uh, heat pumps and pulling apart furnaces and a lot of that stuff, I quite enjoyed the micro details that were involved in, in pulling these things apart in a sequence and then trying to figure out the problems and then put them back together. So it's it's very it's very involving and it's very satisfying for me. What keeps you coming back to the events every year? Because because I, I can tell it clearly like hits you right in the heart. You know what? It's uh, for me, especially now. It's it's that appreciation and love. It's like, man, if I, I just still had my eyesight and I could get myself behind the wheel in that car. Um, it, it it it's really the draw of that. But some of these vehicles, just the thought and the detail that that's go into these. Like I I'm a much appreciative of the older vehicles, the Novas, the SSs, the Chevelles, um, you know, the the old Chargers and Challengers, these old cars that these guys have taken years of time and money and detail and putting into these cars. And then when you hear the music of, you know, a 454 big block fire up and the cams are pumping and the superchargers whining, it just sends shivers down your spine because it's not only something that you have to visually enjoy, but when you can hear a motor like that fire up, you can feel it and you can enjoy it even when you're sight loss. March 22nd to 24th at the RBC Convention Center in Winnipeg and autorama.com to learn more autorama.com to learn more about the event. Okay, Derek, from uh, muscle cars and custom cars to heavy metal. So from one metal to a different, a different kind. You had a chance to attend the Pantera concert in Winnipeg a couple weeks ago. I know you were pretty jacked up about it. How was the show? It was uh, jacking, we, we should <laughs> say. Like, it was just awesome. You know, we got there. Um, and when Lama God took the stage uh, to open up for Pantera and they were, the drum set was getting tuned in and you could feel all the beats. 
your your blood starts pumping in your in your in your veins and we're all sitting up there people by the swag and it was like prairie dogs all turning and looking in sequence like oh, they're coming it's time to get down to our seats <laughs> and you could hear the viking bullhorns go and and it was like a charge for your seats man it was you got down there and the moment they came out the crowd erupted and the roar of metalheads in the thousands filled the arena and they hit their notes and they played their tunes and they pumped it up but you could tell they held back a little bit because they weren't the headliners tonight man they were just trying to prime us up and get that <laughs> blood pumping and get us all energized and ready so of course the best way for lamb of god to end uh, a setup for pantera was of course to play their song redneck which is the song where we always always end up forming a circle pit on the floor oh gosh and that circle pit, that circle pit gets moving and bodies are swinging and flowing and you can tell that it's just going to be a good night because it is just everybody's <laughs> just getting jacked man. derek so, you, derek you and i are way too old to be getting involved in a mosh pit you know what it was great because when pantera took the stage of course bill had to obviously start it with you know a good you know fair fair you know word of advertisement to everyone that every note every song we play tonight every every bang of someone's head every set of horns in the air were dedicated tonight to of course vince and dimebag daryl abbott um you know being that they're they're gone and and away from us so rest in peace to both of them and you know what everyone just got jacked from that point and we were like you know what i think it almost made people hit it that much harder but when when Phil was playing, he had to make an announcement for a couple of songs where, you know, people don't know who Pantera is. And he was talking about Metallica concerts, where it's like when Metallica fans don't know who this Pantera is until they start playing a song. And of course, that's the song Walk. And the moment those first notes hit, everyone knows who Pantera is. And it was it was great because he even said, you know, like, this is for all you old retire moshies. It's time to come out of retirement <laughs> and show these new kids, these young kids, how we did it in the day and to teach, you know, these young kids and every young kid in here, find the nearest old mosher and the old guy around here. And you pay attention, you learn the words and you learn the rhythm and you learn how to do this. And we hit it off and we hit it good. Uh, the last time I was in a mosh pit, it was against my will. I was at a Wu-Tang Clan concert, and a mosh pit started around me, which was somewhat alarming. The last time I was voluntarily in a mosh pit was in the summer of 2009. I uh, lost my cell phone at a Flogging Molly's concert, never to be found again. I still wonder where that Motorola Razor is. Uh, Derek, I, I want to talk more about the general culture of metal, because it sounds like this was perhaps a little bit of a celebration of the history of Pantera in conjunction with trying to bring some new people into the temple. And that's one of the things that struck me about metal in general. It's a subculture. It's a subculture of music, and there's subcultures within the subculture. But if there's one thing I've noted about metal over the years, goodness gracious, is it all about community and connecting the generations? It is. It's phenomenal to think about it. Like when you look back on the history of metal and it's starting back in the 60s with like Black Sabbath and Deep Purple 
And you hear that now and a lot of people just think, well, that's not really a metal. That's that's more of like a light rock. But that's where, you know, that's where things have kind of come through, through history. And that's where we started. And as you go through the ages, it generally graduates to Alice Cooper's and Iron Maiden's. And, uh, you know, and then you have Judas Priests. And then slowly things pick up and all the subcultures and all the subgenres start taking off and you move into thrash metal and you get the big heavy four hitters of slayer anthrax megadeth uh you know you you get big bands like that hitting it in there and metallica and involved with them as well and then you start breaking into viking metals and you get them on a marth hitting that one up you get death metals like cannibal corpse and it it really breaks off and it really picks up and you have the different subcultures and it really is. It doesn't matter to what kind of show you're into or what kind of metal you're into. You could have Cannibal Corpse opening for Slayer and one doesn't like the other. But when you're in that environment, in that community, you guys are like family. It's a brotherhood. It doesn't matter. When you're in a mosh pit, you see people and, and, and people are afraid of mosh pits. Let's get that straight, first of all, because people go, why would somebody go to a concert? Why would you want to get involved in that violent and, and get hit and punched? And it's and it's funny because you watch people that come to the show for the first time and they see a pit in action and people are helping people up and they're clapping them on the shoulders and they're 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 giving them a good time and high fives after all that, you know, people look at it as violence, but you know, like moshing started in the late 70s at punk rock shows, and it's become a more and more extreme form of dancing. And that's really what it is. It's the type of dancing that happens at a metal show because nobody's going to foxtrot or, or, or do a <laughs> Charleston at a, at a metal concert. And nobody's going to, you know, nobody's going to bump and grind at a metal concert because that's not wow. our type of music. It's head banging. It's, you know, devil horns in the air and it's a mosh pit. And that is our extreme form of dancing. And when we do it, we do it with everything in us because that is what the music does. It's a complete release of your, your inner feelings, your love of the music, per, you, who you are as a person. And yeah, sure, it may look like it's violent, but it is like the camaraderie and brotherhood of like Vikings going into battle and to war and watching your fellow man you know take an arrow in the chest but helping him pull it out picking him up and getting back in there and going at him that's exactly what a mosh pit is like for me well derek i'm glad you had a good time have a lovely day talk to you in a couple weeks sounds great dave thank you that's derek lackey community reporter in winnipeg pantera by the way still on tour across north america february 26th in toronto february 27th in quebec city i believe uh, big bruce mclarian down the hall in the control room is headed to that toronto show so uh, looking forward to getting his review behind the scenes pantera.com slash tour to learn more in 60 seconds laura bain will move away from metal and back to some rock and role of the Beatles variety in the entertainment report. But first, more companies are creating AI-generated videos. Mike Dubusky has the story in Tech Trends. 
OpenAI's artificial intelligence tools can already generate writing and imagery, so video was never going to be that far behind, says TrueMedia.org founder Oren Etzioni. Sora is very simply a magical program where you type in text and out comes a video that corresponds to your text. Sora uses OpenAI's large language model to generate ultra-realistic videos, but NYU professor and AI expert Gary Marcus says it's still imperfect. If you look carefully, there are often problems, but if it's a short little video, you might be able to fool somebody pretty easily. Which is why, he says, it's raising disinformation concerns. It's making the whole process of deep faking easier. It's making so you don't need any technical skills to make a fake video that looks like almost anything you want. OpenAI is not yet releasing Sora to the public. Right now, it says outside researchers are looking at ways it could be misused. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. The number one film at the North American box office is the Bob Marley biopic and Laura Bain in Entertainment Today. It looks like some more famous musicians are going to be getting some biopic love. Yeah, that's right. It's been announced that each of the four Beatles will be the subject of their own upcoming biopic. Uh, and these will all be directed by Sir Sam Mendes. Now, apparently when you have a series of four, it's called a tetralogy. Okay. I didn't know that word. Uh, tetralogy instead of a, tr- a trilogy. I would have gone quadralogy, but that's just me. Yeah, I think I would have I would have as well. But, um, you know, Dave, we talked about the Beatles yesterday, but to kind of get us in the mood for the story, and just because I, I think there's something sort of amusing about bringing two Beatles clips <laughs> to the entertainment report two days in a row, uh, we've got a little Sgt. Pepper's Heart Club, a uh, Lonely Heart Club band to listen to. So that album, of course, inspired its own musical comedy film back in 1978. I don't know if you've seen that before, Dave, starring the Bee Gees, Peter Frampton, and Steve Martin. Uh, no, was, I, no, uh, I haven't seen it. Pretty bad, apparently. It was okay. a real flaw, but we should, <laughs> we should expect more from these upcoming biopics. Uh, we have Paul and Ringo each signing off on the project, as have the families of John and George. And the reason that that is uh, so significant is because that's never happened before, where there's been this kind of level of buy-in from the band members or their fam- and their families, and that includes granting music rights. So, uh, of course, it would be yeah. probably some pretty crummy films if we didn't have access to oh. the music. Yeah, you can't you can't do these Beatles biopics without music access. And I I wonder if maybe that's why it's taken so long to actually get this done, because the Beatles catalog has been owned by so many different people over the last 30, 40 years. Yeah, I I think probably. Now, folks are going to have to wait a little while to see these films because they're not being released until 2027. Okay, mark my calendar. Yeah, mark your calendar. Now, Sony has teased that these are going to have an innovative release uh, cadence to these four films, but no further details. I I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but any speculations on what an innovative release cadence could mean? I I wonder if it's just a particular order, right? That they say, hey, we're going to be releasing these in four consecutive months, rather than saying, okay, here's the release, and now you've got to wait a year for the next release. I wonder if it's sort of the first Friday of the month, the new Beatles, uh, the new Beatles biopic drops. So you got your taste of John. Now it's time for some Paul and here's some George. And finally, Ringo gets his own boring movie. 
Yeah, well, I don't uh, oh, like throwing some shade on Ringo there. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how innovative that sounds, but I can't really think of anything myself. I did hear, uh, I read something today about, uh, you know, Dark Side of the Moon style. Maybe they sync up. I don't think that's going to happen, okay. but that would certainly be an innovative release, Kate. <laughs> I love it when these um, marketing professionals just create nonsense expressions that mean nothing. Yeah, release cadence. No one's ever used this expression before. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, it's sort of an interesting choice to go ahead and make one about each beetle, of course, rather than making one big biopic. And each one is going to be from the point of view from the point of view of a beetle. So that will be interesting for me to see kind Ooh. of how they how they sync up. But I'm wondering if one of these four films sort of jumps out at you or if there's one that you're going to be more likely to watch. I guess I'm sort of Ooh. asking you your favorite beetle in a uh, roundabout way. Ooh, I, you know, you are asking me my favorite beetle in a certain way, but but I think you're also asking the question of what makes for the most interesting story. Because I would say in terms of favorite beetle, I waver between George and Paul. I, I think some of the work that Paul did post Beatles is quite interesting and good. Uh, Band on the Run, Paul McCartney and Wings, is actually probably as good as any individual Beatles record. So so I, I would say Paul is my favorite Beatle. I don't know if Paul's the story that I'm most interested in. It's probably John. I, I just think with the assassination and I think with a lot of the work that he did in regards to world peace and sit-ins and a lot of his underlying belief system probably makes for the most interesting movie. Yeah, for sure. Well, that was that was what I was kind of thinking, you know, and I thought I was being a little bit basic by saying John. So I'm glad that you're with there with me there on that. Um, but I guess I, I think there's still something about him that still resonates and there's still sort of a bit of an artist or, or poet mystique around John and his life. So that's probably the one that I'll be most curious about. And, and George, because I think there's just not as much kind of out there about George. And I don't know, I'm not going to throw any shade on Ringo. I, I think he's uh, you done a lot. I knew him as the station master in Shining Time Station. That's an interesting <laughs> chapter, don't you think? I don't know. If you're going to tell me I get to compare the biopic of the guy who wrote Here Comes the Sun versus the guy who wrote uh, I'd Like to Be Under the Sea in an Octopus's Garden, I think I know where I'm going to land, Laura. Laura, thank you for this. Have a lovely day. <laughs> Yeah, thanks so much, Dave. You as well. That's Laura Bain at the Entertainment Desk. Coming up after the break, what happens to an athlete, specifically a para-athlete, when it's time to transition away from a career in para-sports? Brock Richardson will share his perspective. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Heading out the door with a little more Beatles for you. ba spum Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio at amiplus.ca. I'm Dave Brown. It's Wednesday, February the 21st, 2024. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Air Canada is offering lanyards to travelers with invisible disabilities. Kelly Braun Johnson reacts to the Sunflower Initiative. And Saskatchewan is dealing with overcrowding in hospitals. Journalist John Lepke 
has an update, but the hour begins with a sports chat. All right, Brock, something happened on the show yesterday that caught your attention. Becky Czar did a segment talking about transitioning in life after acquiring a disability, and that got you thinking about transitioning in life after sport for people engaged in the Paralympics. You were a Paralympian yourself. So why did that conversation catch your attention? Well, I think the transition in life portion of the conversation that caught my attention, which then spawned into this conversation, was the part where she said, people give you that inspiration porn where it's like, you can do anything you want. You can you can do what you want. You're, you know, you can do this. And then you guys talked about, well, can you really be a surgeon? Well, the answer to that is no. And for me, what spawned this conversation was, I got the reverse of that when I finished my career in in sports everybody would turn to me and say yeah but you've been doing this for 15 years you know what are you going to do how are you going to be a different person other than your identity as an athlete which I really really struggled with for a long time before I made the decision and arguably I struggled with it so long Dave that I, I stayed into the sport longer because I started to buy into those thoughts and those feelings of like, oh, uh, who am I? What am I? And I just, I really struggled with it. And I'm happy to say, obviously, that I came out. I always knew that I would have a love for, for media and, and sports and things like that. But there definitely was that seed of doubt where it was like, what am I? I did not get the luxury of people saying to me, oh, you can be anything you want to be. Not that I would want it to be overkill, but I, I got the reverse and I really, really struggled with it. Really did. I'm going to quote Aristotle. It might have been Plato. The sports segment's taking a spin here, taking a twist. You are what you do repeatedly. You are what you do repeatedly, and it seems impossible not to wrap yourself in an identity of something that you do repeatedly, and especially when it comes to elite-level sports, how are you not supposed to wrap your identity around that, right? You're talking about playing at Paralympic Games, traveling around the world, competing at the highest level. How do you not make that part of your identity? Like, like I, that's more well, of a, that's more of a therapist question than a than a broadcast question. But like, but but I'm deeply empathetic to the idea. Well, and the thing to this is, if you don't wrap yourself in into this and you don't jump in with two feet and jump in the pool, then you run the risk of coaches and teammates saying that you're not fully invested. I mean, I I ran into that towards the end of my career, the last year, year and a half, where it's like. But you got one foot in the pool and one foot not. And so then you get into, well, you want me to not wrap my identity fully around what I am in sports, but then you're 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 telling me that I'm not in the pool fully. So it is that um that that questioning that that does happen to you. I will say when I uh retired in in uh twenty seventeen ish, twenty eighteen, um there wasn't as many resources as there is available now. I was uh, talking to an athlete, which I was interviewing for uh, the Neutral Zone podcast, and and they were going down the similar path of like, am I am I thinking of retiring? And and she said to me, I'm so glad that there are resources. And I remember sitting there during the conversation, thinking, 
man, I wish there was resources available to, to me because I really struggled. And I'm so happy that the world has lended into we need the resources because to expect people to, okay, you're not an athlete anymore, move on and, and go on about your life, have a nice day, don't let the door hit you in the rear end, um, that's not where we are in today's world. When you dedicate so much of your time and life to 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 something and then you're just not that anymore it does take a lot of of you know soul searching into what we're going to do next i mean i struggled with it with the neutral zone podcast even like what do i do like it just it goes through all parts of your life and everything does turn around but it's it's that question of how does it turn around and how quickly does it turn around and does it turn around as quickly as you anticipate it's going to brock thank you for this have a nice day talk to you tomorrow you as well. That's Brock Richardson doing a little something different at the AMI Sports Desk. Let's get an update and some more reaction to a new short story that I shared with you a couple weeks ago. Air Canada is rolling out a new program for travelers with invisible disabilities. People can identify at check-in and receive a sunflower lanyard. The lanyard indicates that someone may need additional accommodations during travel. Let's get some more reaction from Kelly Braun Johnson. Kelly is the founder of Completely Inclusive. Hey, good morning, Kelly. Nice to chat with you again. Hi, good morning, Dave. So, Kelly, a few folks have had the chance to react to the story on the show in the last two weeks. It's your turn. What's your general reaction to this policy that our Canada announced? So I'm always a little cynical, a little skeptical. Here <laughs> Me <I go>. too. <laughs> um, <laughs> here we are. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of have a bit of an issue a little bit of an issue when it, when it's the onus is always on us to either declare or disclose um, that we might need assistance rather than just having that assistance provided as a matter of a fact, like just for everyone, um, or the, the kind of show that we that we're deserving or worthy of extra attention or special, you know, so-called special assistance. Um, I find it similar to kind of the this. I don't know if you know about the Blue Pumpkin Initiative at Halloween. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. that, yeah. So it's 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 basically saying that somebody needs to recognize that we have a disability before we're treated kindly. Um, you know, the the idea that well, there's some kids who can't say trick or treat, so then they would not deserve to get a candy otherwise. And it's just so wild to me that that we're holding these things against people um, when really that's all that might be required is a little bit extra time, maybe a bit more patience. We just don't want to be yelled at and screamed at. Mm. We're not quite sure what's happening. So that's kind of where my, my issue is. Kelly, there's been some consensus in reaction to this story on the show. The, the day the news broke, I, I, I threw it around to a bunch of different columnists on the show, and the general feeling was cynicism and skepticism because there have been so many well-publicized issues with how airlines treat people with visible disabilities, let alone invisible disabilities. Uh, all of us shared a little bit of our experiences. What's your experience been like? So um, mine's kind of funny. So I just flew just a few weeks ago on, on Air Canada, actually. And it's in my profile um, that I'm hard of hearing. So there's like a little menu. There's a few options that you can choose from to put, you know, that you have a disability. Um, but no one actually mentioned or said anything about it ever before until one of my last two flights um, just this month, earlier this month. Um, and so the first flight, uh, after the security briefing, the secu- um, a flight agent came up to me 
and said, can you hear me? <laughs> I said, yes, I am talking to you, right? <laughs> um, and, and then she said, um, she says, okay, well, because uh, I think it, she might have said, well, I think it says that you're hard of hearing. I said, yes, uh, but I, I'm not wearing my hearing aid right now because the plane is already loud. I'm fine. Like, I'm fine on the plane. Um, and she goes, okay, well, do you need, uh, do you need a, a separate, like, safety briefing or anything? And I was like, no, we, we just went through the safety briefing. <laughs> um, and, and she's like, okay, well, if, if there's an emergency, do you know what to do? And I was like, well, if the oxygen mask falls, I, I'm going to grab it and I'll probably start screaming like everyone else. <laughs> I, I take my cue from what's going on around me. Um, but, you know, I, I don't I don't mean to be glib with them. They're trying to do their job to the best that they've been trained. Um, but what I also found interesting, my boarding pass now says death in capital letters on the corner. Um, actually, it says death GF for gluten free. So I received my meal and I received a deaf gluten-free meal. Oh wow! Uh, it was it was deaf chicken and rice and salad. It was delicious. <laughs> um, but it's just it's just funny to me that like that's the label that is put, um, which is not the correct label because I'm I'm not deaf and it's and it's when you're not offered enough of the options or to say exactly what kind of assistance I may or may not require. It's not helpful for the staff. It's not really helpful for anyone. So um, there's still some work to be done there. Kelly, you and I can circle back to staff and training in just a second, but I do want to offer a little bit of a counterbalance here because the Sunflower program is not necessarily a brand new concept. It's been tested in other places and industries, and I know you're deeply connected to the community. What kind of feedback have people expressed about the way this type of program has been rolled out in other industries and other places? So for sure, I mean it's huge in the UK where it initiated, um, and I asked I asked some of my friends because you know I was very critical about it, um, and some of my friends piped up. So I have an autistic friend um, who who uh, told me that she appreciates it. Um, she's used it um, at different airports, and it has taken away some of that stress because she said she tends to ask a lot of questions, not necessarily know where she needs to be, um, and before before wearing the sunflower lanyard, um, she was met with hostility. A lot of times if you're you're taking up too much of their time, you're asking, you know, um, questions that you should know. Um, and she's been met with more patience when she wears the lanyard. Um, and also there's a bit more of a proactiveness to it. Both they'll come and approach her and ask her if she would like assistance. And she was also allowed to sit in a quieter area and the board first and many different things like that. Um, that just made her travel experience so much easier. Mm. Kelly, let's get back to staffing and training, though, because I do think those positive experiences are rooted in some kindness and also an effective implementation of policy. When it really comes down to Canadian Airlines, and I'm going to say Canadian Airlines in general and not just Target Air Canada here, all the lost mobility devices, all the horror stories you hear about people having to drag themselves on the ground off their plane because there was no assistance at the Las Vegas airport. How much of this actually just boils down to better internal training for employees? So I see it as there's a difference also, I think, between this initiative being rolled out at an airport, which it has across Canada and many airports, and being rolled out with just an airline. 
Um, and I, I would like to see some consistency between those experiences, because let's say you go to an airport that has the program, and then you land at a different airport or fly with an airline that doesn't have the program, and you land at a different one, there's no consistency of, of how you're going to be treated or what kind of expectations that there might be. Um, and I don't know about you, but a lot of my stress actually doesn't come from the airline. It comes from CATSA, from the transport, the security. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and sometimes border control. But security is really one that's super inconsistent, especially in the way that they treat you. Um, and sometimes they even they'll put you in a special line. Uh, but it doesn't matter. They're still screaming at you. And, you know, one place is take off your shoes. One place is don't take off your shoes. Don't take out your liquids. Take out your liquids. Um, they they love to to pull me aside. And all that to say, um, I would love to have this initiative kind of rolled out across the board. Uh, and again, the training needs to be consistent across the board. I don't, and that's probably a lot to ask at this, at this time. Um, but one airline doing it and then doing it their way is not the same as an airport doing it and then another airline and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, and that's it. I, I think the way this story got covered, at least in the mass media, there was a lot of flowers being thrown Air Canada's way, no, no pun intended. I think without sort of understanding some of the greater issues that people with disabilities face when traveling, you mentioned security, and I don't... I don't do these stories often. I don't. I don't like to tell these, uh, you know, harrowing tales of a woeful inconvenience. But I do remember flying through Toronto a couple of years ago uh, out of Pearson for a work trip, and I had a bunch of work stuff, including a laptop in my bag, which set off the sensors and blah blah blah. Got put aside. Except nobody indicates to you that, oh, your bag got put aside and now you've got to stand over here. And all of a sudden I just hear screaming, whose bag is this? Whose bag is this? Whose, whose bag is this? And I'm like, oh, well, I am missing a bag, so maybe it's my bag. And I kind of wander over and I go, oh, excuse me, I, I, I wonder if that's mine. Well, how can you wonder if it's your bag? You should know it's your bag. And then I kind of say, well, I'm, I'm legally blind. I, I didn't know my bag got put aside or that you had my bag. And then they just yelled at me, well, you should identify yourself better. So it goes back to this idea of like, treat me like a human. Don't yell at me. Don't scream at me. And maybe we don't need these lanyards at all. That's the ideal world I would like to be in. Absolutely. Anyway, all right. Ideal world. I like that, Kelly. <laughs> Kelly, thank you for this. <laughs> Have a lovely day. Talk to you soon. Thanks, you too. That's Kelly Braun Johnson, the founder of Completely Inclusive. Coming up next, Saskatchewan is dealing with record overcrowding in hospitals. Journalist John Lepke gives you an update. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio at amiplus.ca. The province of Saskatchewan is dealing with a record overcrowding in some of their hospitals. Saskatoon's largest hospital, I can speak English, I swear, Saskatoon's largest hospital resorted to having patients waiting in hallways... The Nurses' Union says officials need to do more to address the issue. John Lepke has been following the story. He's a freelance journalist based in Saskatoon. Hey, good morning again, John. Good morning, Dave. So, John, what's the full extent of the situation? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that the situation, if we had to put a title on it, is pretty dire. Um, there was an action plan put in place last year, late last year, for Saskatoon and Regina. We'll get to that in a minute, I think. But um, this came at a time when a fire marshal was called to one of Saskatoon's hospitals in November last year due to concerns that overcrowding was increasing risks to patients should an emergency like that happen, including one person who called in the fire marshal after uh, concerns because they were blocking an exit. Um, that action plan has included more staff and beds, um, but as of last week, there were patients waiting more than 120 hours in the hallway at one of those Oof. hospitals. Oof. Well, so what are hospitals doing in the short term, in the immediacy here to deal with overcrowding? Yeah, so like I mentioned, people have been placed in hallways, and the largest topic of conversation that I see from healthcare staff, both in the media and I happen to go to school with a bunch of people who became nurses, is how people can be accommodated. So that can look like, you know, how how quickly can we get them into maybe a rehabilitation or a convalescent bed that may be a little bit more open, or as always, you know, how can we get them home um, and supported in, in their home environment? Um, if we look at the data this morning, because the Sask Health Authority has a dashboard that is updated every 15 minutes so we're a little bit out of date but as of 8:22 local time <laughs> there were only 28 vacant beds in saskatoon's hospitals ignoring our children's hospital the vast majority of those beds were um quote-unquote over capacity beds so not ones that are part of sort of day-to-day -day operations in an ideal world you mentioned Regina, the provincial capital. The province introduced a capacity pressure action plan last fall. Everything's got to be an action plan, John. What is that intending to do in terms of easing some of these pressures? Well, you and I both know it looks better on a press release. Um, more beds <laughs> have been added and more staff positions have been created, but it's important to note that the vast majority of those new staff positions have not been filled yet. Um, looking at about upwards of 200 uh, new positions created and only about 90 filled as of a report by CBC last week. Um, to give you context, the local nurses union, which is never shy either, has described the situation as inhumane for both patients and staff. John, there's been no shortage of healthcare coverage in the national media. I know that I've been like a dog on a bone with some of the issues in Quebec that have popped up since mid-October through November and into the winter months. Certainly, I was on the British Columbia side of the story in January when their hospitals were well over 100% capacity. I, I think I know the answer to this question, but why do you think the Saskatchewan side of the story hasn't necessarily garnered the same attention? Yeah, I think there are three things that happen here. I mean, one, and, and the predictable answer is, you know, Saskatchewan is one of the provinces that we we can sometimes refer to as the flyover yeah, province. You yeah. wave at it as you, as you, you know, you fly to uh, Alberta, or more commonly British Columbia. But there are two more parts that I think are, are sort of even more telling. So our healthcare system has been under a tremendous amount of pressure even before COVID-19. Um, the plight of rural Saskatchewanians has been a real issue um, with hospital, you know, ER closures or pauses due to that lack of staffing. Um, but I think there's a little bit of, for lack of a better term, uh, reader fatigue. You see so many healthcare stories around COVID-19 and, and healthcare in general, and those are really important. But I think it has left sort of the the um, topics like hospital overcrowding to, to lead to responses like, well, at least at least they're there, at least they're getting treatment. The second part, and this is more local, is that 
you know, in the court of public opinion, I think Saskatchewan teachers have really dominated the court of opinion in the last mm, while, and mm. um, for for good reason. But it does often feel a little bit like we can only have one public service issue at a time that dominates headlines, and and the um uh the the hospitals are a sort of a victim of that. I will say that uh, from my vantage point, November and December. It was a higher topic of conversation when these reports came out. Um, but this is one of the cases where we follow up and find out that the follow through net hasn't necessarily mm. been there. John, I loathe to relive March of 2020 through about March of 2022. <laughs> Just those were a very difficult couple of years for a lot of people in a lot of different ways. I consumed and uh, shared a whole lot of COVID-19 news. It basically led the show for about two years. Mm-hmm. One of my recollections, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is Saskatchewan is one of the only provinces that actually required extreme federal military assistance in terms of propping up their healthcare system for sustained periods of time during the pandemic. And I wonder if maybe that's one of the things that got lost in the Omicron wave, that during Delta, Saskatchewan system was on the brink of collapse, right? Now, there were a lot of systems that were darn close during the course of the pandemic, but Saskatchewan was really, really close to utter collapse. Well, and Saskatchewan was one of the first provinces to reduce their reporting requirements. Um, And a pessimist, uh, which I would count myself as one, might say that uh, that was an effort to take away sort of the high focus on, on, um, you know, the failings of our healthcare system. But, but you're right that, that Saskatchewan had uh, and continues to have a really tough time navigating how COVID can impact our healthcare system. And by the way, um, you know, the topic of conversation that has been most prominent uh, over the last oh, decade or so with Saskatoon hospitals has been plights like um, the fact that nurses have to pay and, and, and patients have to pay an exorbitant pricing in terms of parking. Yeah, at, yeah. Particularly these Saskatoon and Regina hospitals. Um, but our our hospital narrative, if we can call it that, has traditionally focused more on the rural areas. Um, so I think now that it's a, uh, a, a terrible metaphor here, but you know it's a war on two fronts. Yeah, it, it, it's fragility. The medical system is a fragile one in Canada, whether it be in Saskatchewan, whether it be in Atlantic Canada or elsewhere. At this point, I don't think there's any province that is particularly uh, saying that we've got this thing under control because it's pretty clear that uh, at this point, nobody does. And it's it's one of the big underlying brambling concerns that even when there's $2 billion health deals struck over a year ago between the feds and the provinces, only four provinces have actually formally cut a deal since then. So uh, the issues are on going. John, thank you for this. Mm -hmm. Always a pleasure. Have a great day. Thanks so much, Dave. That's John Lepke, freelance journalist based in Saskatoon. Coming up next, lightening the mood, getting into the athletics, not the clanging and banging that I wanted to do at the gym this morning. Training season for marathons and triathlons. Elizabeth Moeller reflects on her experience. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's not quite the time of the year to run marathons or do triathlons, at least not in Canada, maybe in Hawaii. But it's always time to get your training in. Elizabeth Moeller is preparing for her 10th season in the marathon and triathlon game. Elizabeth is the founder of EM Disability Consulting. Hey, good morning, Elizabeth. Hey, good morning, Dave. How are you doing? Elizabeth, I'm great. I know you've talked about your triathlon experiences and your marathon experiences on the show before, but what keeps you coming back each year? It's February. What gets you on the treadmill or jumping in the pool to get ready to do it again? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a couple of things. I think there's a real sense of community and camaraderie. You know, I, I think about why I started fitness and it was really about finding a community when I was in grad school. Um, and I think there's a real sense of accomplishment, you know, being able to say you've completed yet another race or you've met a personal best or, you know, you've done something new or different, tried a new kind of race, like a trail run. I think that's what keeps me coming back and and the people. Um, it's, a, it's a real family, uh, you know, specifically in the, in the triathlon landscape. And I think that for me, and just also the sense of feeling good you know, feeling good, having accomplished something and that feeling afterwards when you've accomplished something and, and been like, wow, I, I didn't think I could do it. It was 40 degrees outside, but I, mm. I did it. Yeah. Elizabeth, as you get more experienced, the act of simply finishing is no longer the rush, I imagine. You start wanting to hit thresholds or goals. So how do you handle that going into the start of a year? How are you setting goals for yourself beyond simply saying, I'm going to finish the triathlon? Exactly. Yeah. So I think there's a couple things. Um, I start to look for different distances. So, you know, if if in the previous year I did sprint, which is sort of your standard 750 meter swim, your 20k bike ride and your seven kilometer run, maybe doing an Olympic, um, which is a lot bigger. You're doing kilometer and a half swim, a 40k bike ride, and then a 10 kilometer run. The other thing um, to think about is your time. So are you improving your time? Um, you know, really cutting down on the time that you've had in the past. Um, also just thinking about different kinds of races. So I did one the year before last where we started on a boat. So we jumped off a really big ferry boat into the water. So again, just trying different things. Um, and I think just also um, really kind of a, a measure of like, okay, not just finishing, but like, what were what were my training goals and did I achieve those? So, you know, leading up to the triathlon, thinking about the cross training with with whether it's weights or whether it's um, floor work and was I able to accomplish the goals that I wanted to get me here? I, uh, I want to know about the training because the world of fitness has evolved. It's always evolving, but it certainly feels like it's evolved in different ways in the last decade or so with the rise of Instagram fitness influencers and TikTok uh, fitness influencers. What are the trends that you're experiencing, uh, whether it be at the gym or in some of the more generalized training spaces? Yeah, for sure. So I think at the gym, a lot of what I'm seeing is, um, you know, gym classes and gyms for different bodies. So um, I'm seeing classes for like uh, new moms or um, expecting moms. I'm seeing a lot of classes for older adults or people of different body sizes and body types and abilities, which is wonderful. I'm seeing a lot more uh, classes geared to people with uh, different disabilities. 
fitness wise, you know, what I'm, what I'm starting to see a lot of is, um, this, this, you know, start small. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to go out and run a 5k or you don't have to go out, um, and do a triathlon or a race. You can just get out and do a walk or you can do, um, you know, some, some weights at home or even just getting, getting some chair yoga going. So this idea of starting small, and I know that we've touched on this on, on the show before. And I know Ryan, um, Van Priest talked about it, but this, you know, really debunking this myth of like, you have to have pain to have gain. And that's actually <laughs> not true for your body at all. You know, really thinking about a little bit discomfort's okay but um you know moving away from some of these sort of myths about you know being this um fitness as a result of wanting to lose weight as opposed to fitness for mental health and mental well-being which is sort of now what we're seeing in that sense of um feeling just really good after you do something yeah it it becomes a delicate balance though because if you circle back to what you're talking about in terms of stretching out your length or trying to hit personal bests or trying to achieve these Mm -hmm. goals you do have to push yourself a little bit, right? Absolutely. I've talked about how this year I've gotten a little more engaged on the weightlifting front, at least in the first few months of the year. I'm sure I'll fall off the track here eventually. And I've already maxed out the bench press bar uh, in my in my wow. building's gym. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't that hard to do. It's only two plates on each side. Just, you know, a little 225. No biggie, no biggie, no nothing <laughs> over here. But it's gotten to the point where it's like, oh gosh, maybe I have to go order some new weights online to load up the bar a little bit further. Because to a certain degree, if you really want to start, like, like again, yeah. if you're a beginner or you're just getting started or you're just trying to be a little bit more healthy okay you can pretty much do anything but when you start having goals you've got to you actually have to start pushing yourself a little bit yeah. and that's and that's yeah. and like now it's a, it's it's a delicate balance because if you push yourself too far you're going to hurt yourself you're going to quit there could be all kinds of other factors but it's a delicate balance and i think i imagine especially when it comes to doing something like a triathlon or a marathon you really have to walk that delicate line Absolutely. And and it's interesting that you bring that up because I remember one race, um, I think it was in 2023, where it was 40 degrees and really hot. And the run for the Toronto Triathlon is actually down by the exhibition. So there's a lot of open road and not a lot of trees. And I remember feeling a little bit dizzy, really thirsty, no matter how much water and how much Gatorade I drank and how much water I dumped over my head and thinking like, should I stop because I'm worried I'm going to collapse versus like you say, you know, keep going that little bit of um, pain or discomfort. So I think, you know, always checking in with yourself if you're working out or, or um, engaged in physical activity with somebody kind of having checking in with each other. But I think absolutely. And when you mentioned that, I thought, yeah, like that race for me, that was the hardest I've ever pushed myself because we were in a heat warning and you're literally running on asphalt next to cars, which are emitting very hot exhaust. So yeah, absolutely. of, Of the three disciplines involved in a triathlon, which one do you like the most? Which one do you get the most pleasure out of? I would say probably the swim, which is the first one. People might wonder why, because you might think, oh, I would do the swim last to cool down. But people, um, the reason it's done first is so that folks are safe because you don't want to be doing a swim in the lake when you're tired. I like the swim because I have lots of energy. It's the first sport. I'm exhilarated. Everyone's kicking off together. Everyone's um, cheering each other on. There's a couple races that are for um, women specific. And what they'll do is throw pink petals into the water during the swim to honor uh, women who are breast cancer survivors. So that's always a really beautiful moment to look forward to. But that start of the gun and jumping in the lake, although not when it's 17 degrees Celsius, is probably (laughs) one of the things I like the most. So it's February 21st. What's your timeline here in terms of the season ramping up in earnest? 
Okay, so um, I just signed up for my first indoor race of the season on March 9th. So we've got two weeks. Oh, we gosh. started doing, yeah, I know, <laughs> intensive. We did some hill training this morning. Um, so February 9th, uh, sorry, March 9th is our, our first race. And then um, we're doing a couple of runs. My guide and I are doing a couple of runs in April, May, just to get our legs warmed up, a 5K and then a 10K. And then we start with the outdoor season in June, hopefully with the Guelph Triathlon. So I, I also recommend if people have never done it before starting with an indoor triathlon to just see if you like the three sports together if you actually can swim as well as you thought um that's that's really helpful. <laughs> oh i know i can't swim well I, I know you i know you've won a couple medals here over the years but uh there'd be no medals for my swimming that's quite all right. There's there's uh, lots of different sports people can do. But yeah, I, so that, that'll that be my first race of the season. And, it, you know, the indoor one's nice because you're swimming in a pool and you're just getting a sense for, for um, how your body moves through the different sports. Well, Elizabeth, good luck to you. All the best and uh, talk to you next week. Absolutely. Talk to you next week, Dave, and keep going with those bench presses. I want to hear where you're at. We'll uh, keep working on it. The bench press, the ultimate glamour exercise. There's no doubt about it. That's Elizabeth Moeller, the founder of EM Disability Consulting. Coming up after the break, you'll find out what's coming up on Kelly and Rumia later this afternoon. And the LCBO is rolling out a new policy in Ontario uh, involving, well, Northern Ontario, involving folks uh, showing IDs to get into the liquor store. Fair or foul? I mean, you know, they're going to check your ID eventually. Maybe. Not when you're an old man like me. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Busy day around AMI-HQ. A bunch of the companies coming by to hang out for a big lunch. And then in the afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern time, after everybody's all stuffed full of sandwiches and salad, Kelly and Ramya hit the airwaves at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Ramya Amuthan is the coast the co-host of that show. I was going to say the coast, but Ramya would never, ever coast. Ramya is the co-host of that show and can tell you what's coming up this afternoon. Hey, good afternoon, Ramya. Well, good morning, Dave. My goodness, uh, we're all over the uh, We're having trouble with reading this afternoon, this morning. <laughs> we're, okay. we're, I'm, on a, I'm on a different planet. I, th- I really do think it's the short week after a long weekend. Uh, That's what I often say. Let's go with that. Let's go with that. Yeah, you're trying to move on to the, the you know what I mean? Okay, anyway. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> um, we're talking to Greg David. It's our biweekly TV talk, and he's talking about a lack of of a pilot season on TV this year and what U.S. networks are doing to kind of uh, compensate for that. Really interested in why and where that's coming from. Also, we have Traveling with J.J. Hunt, our audio describer who joins us monthly. Today, we're going to New York City because what is there not to describe in New York City oh my gosh. Uh, over the years, over the decades, over the centuries, right? Smells, it's... sights, mm-hmm. sounds, a lot of smells. Everything. A lot of smells. That very smelly, very smells. smelly city. It is. Um, also, we have Independent Living with Leanne Barda, kind of switched it up, doing it on a Wednesday, uh, and talking about hosting parties. So as a person with low vision or if you're blind, what kind of things you may want to consider or how to make it more accessible and accommodating for people with disabilities coming to your parties. Have you done the New York thing? Yeah, a couple times, just weekenders. 
I've only been for work purposes. I, oh. I simultaneously liked and disliked the city immensely. Like, it, it actually falls a little bit into my Toronto theory, where it's like there's so much going on that nothing is going on, and it's mm. like it's busy and it's crowded and it smells. But my gosh, Broadway shows, Madison Square Garden, sports, like every cool hip bar in the world. Like, I don't know. I'm like so deeply conflicted. I, I feel like I can live in the moment in New York, but also be deeply dissatisfied. I think you're right. And that's why I only do like two days at a time and, you know, half agenda, half not. So a part of it is just walking around doing whatever. And then the other thing is like hit a Broadway show, spend the day at Macy's. Uh, spending the day at Macy's is very expensive, though. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I, 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 we were hanging out in Times Square in the middle of the day. And I, and I turned to my producer, Lisa No, and I said, this is my personal hell. And she turned back to me and said, that's the fifth time you've said that on this trip <laughs> in different places around Manhattan. Oh, no. And I realized, okay, oh, well, maybe no. I need to. Uh, maybe need to button this one up a little bit. Okay, Romeo, stay right there. Don't fly down to New York just yet. No flights to JFK or Newark or LaGuardia for you because Alex Smythe, instead of New York City, your story comes from Northern Ontario, sort of the polar opposite of New York City. Yeah, Dave. Uh, so this story popped up uh, last week on my feeds and I wanted to bring it to the round table. So there's going to be a new a trial a pilot program taking place at six LCBO locations in northern Ontario. So they will start requiring uh, uh, customers and, and uh, people entering the stores to show ID to enter their locations. This is part of the Controlled Entrance Pilot Program, which is aimed at reducing theft in their stores. And the, that program is set to begin this spring. So there's obviously arguments on both sides. One, you know, being uh, security and, and privacy. The other one is, you know, trying to reduce the amount of theft. If you have to show ID, well, then maybe you're less likely to uh, try to uh, steal any goods from the store. So I want to bring this this uh, topic forward and, and find out from the round table how comfortable you guys are showing ID to just enter a store. Very different from, from purchasing, but to physically get enter the store. Ramya, are you comfortable showing your ID? So personally, I don't think that this is as big of a deal or will be as big of a deal after it's implemented. Like, obviously, this is kind of a pilot project, and then eventually it might become more and more uh, heard of in different scenarios, not just the LCBO. The thing is, it's privacy concerns, obviously, and, and there's arguments, a lot of arguments for that, just the way we hear about, uh, you know, uh, our facial recognition and all other things where people are just aware of who we are because we're, we're walking around the streets and, you know, but... I think that this is going to be very, very normal. And I think that it's already very normal in certain circumstances. Um, but we're just, every time a new scenario pops up of uh, us having to drop our IDs and our identifications of some sort, um, we're like, no, I don't, I don't feel comfortable with that. But it's already out there in various ways. Yeah, especially the context matters here, right? If you asked me to show an ID to enter a dip enter, a convenience store, I'd be cranky about that. But the fact is, you already have to show ID to enter a cannabis store, so why wouldn't a liquor store be the logical extension of that? The, the fact is, it's like written on the entrance of the liquor store, we reserve the right to card you if you want to purchase something here. You know what, Alex? I'm going to go even further. Nobody below the age of 19 allowed in a liquor store. Adults only. Boom. Yeah.
Yeah, really? hey, you know that, and and that's certainly something that I'm I'm okay with. You know, it's like these these are uh, kind of controlled zones, so to speak. You know, and like there's always the rules around like even if you were currently in a liquor store, it's like well, you have to be of uh, you know an adult to be able to to kind of handle the alcohol or or anything like that. Yeah, why don't you you extend it beyond that? I I think for me where I come up with that that I uh, the issue of like having to show ID would be the fact that it's like well you know what if i i decide i don't need to buy anything why should i have to give over my identification just to be a, a customer in the store without the obligation to buy i get it if you are purchasing and and you know we already have these other kind of you know facial recognition as uh, cameras in place as you said rami i just think you know it would be make more sense just to having someone there at, at the the doors to let you in or out uh, as opposed to you know having to add the step of having to show id on top of that i okay. think that's kind of okay. where i grapple with. okay let you in or out but now they're going to be doing receipt checks or bag checks right like like yeah, whether you have yeah. a human there checking your bag or checking your id i'm more comfortable with an id check than a bag check leaving the store if i'm being really honest with you alex Interesting. I, I I'm I'm curious why because like for me I I, I find it it's I I'm more okay with doing a receipt check and and I find that's more normalized than doing the ID checks to go into stores. Obviously, like the one that always jumps out to me is as you mentioned, cannabis stores to do it to get yeah. in. But but yeah. like you know, there's ones like Costco that that have always had it for a long time and that's very normalized. I I find that's less invasive in a way right it's yeah. like i don't have to give up my my identification to show that oh i purchased these items here's the receipt well, to, enter, to, enter a cost, to enter a costco they do make you show your costco card sure. though they have ID. their own special exactly. id yeah yes yes but it's not a, it's not like a government issued id that would have my address or information I, I feel but like if they click your thing, they have like it has your address and information on the little barcode. Everything that they need, yeah. And and that's the thing too. Like you know, there's these. Um, I'm sorry, guys. I don't know how to explain it, but the the, the Amazon stores where you just walk in because the whole point of this LCBO pilot is for um, stealing, right? Like they want to make sure that you're not. Uh, robbing the store or whatever. So I'm saying that this kind of thing is going to come up in all different circumstances, especially because there's less humans and more just automated ways of you walking into a store, picking up what you want and cashing it out yourself and leaving. So there has to be more protocols, I think, just in the general direction of where we're headed with less and less human interaction. So either way, if they want to know who's been in the stores and where where their inventory is <laughs> going, um, we've got to you know leave our stamp. You know, Alex, Ramya is onto something there because it really feels like the in-person shopping experience is going through two simultaneous evolutions. Number one is everything's more automated, contactless this, self-serve that, but also we need to deeply crack down on security and we're going to lock all these cabinets and keep your razors where you cannot get them. Now, you're a bearded fellow. You may not be looking for those razors, but, you know, I got to keep this goatee in line over here, my friend. I do not like having to go through the uh, the special command and rigmarole of getting myself a razor from the locked cabinet. Oh yeah, I 100% agree because at the end of the day you you still have to interact and and there's still require staff to be around and, and to manage those things so it's like it, it, it becomes more more hurdles <laughs> and, and, and hoops that you have to kind of jump through in order to get it or if you have to try to go and find somebody who's Ugh. working at the Ugh. store if, if no one's around if they're all in the back you know that that's always a challenge <laughs> it's like for me I, I get to the point where it's just like is it worth it like I I 
when I see those, if I have to like get razors, I'm, I'm more likely to go online and purchase yep. it online instead of having to deal with those, the hassles of, oh, going to one that has a locked cabinet, trying to find someone to go uh, unlock it for me. Because I, I also like to take my time to pick and choose and, and look at like what I want. I want to be able to pick it up, you know, and not have someone standing there waiting for which one do you want, you know, and hand it to me and lock it up again. And Ramya, that's where I bounce the ball back to you here because you've published stated as part of these roundtables, you're really trying to avoid the online shopping experience. We all get trapped here and there, but you're That's trying true. to go support businesses at a local or regional level. But then you end up getting to the stores and the experience mm -hmm. becomes uh, quite the hassle. I tried to get into a major telecom provider's store last Friday. Literally, I was ready to give them my money to buy a new phone. It was like mm -hmm. two in the afternoon and the door was locked. There was no doorbell. There was no sign mm -hmm. saying we'll be back in 15 minutes. And I'm like, you know what happens? I'm now going to go buy this online from a competitor directly because I'm mad at you. Ramya, biggest pet peeve when going to the in-store experience. Yeah, like I can't find anything. I can't, it, my my protocol is to just go straight to the cash register or customer service desk, like whatever desk where I'm hearing beeping from to go find a human person that I can interact with to then help me with what I need, right? But nowadays I walk I don't even know if I've walked in. Like, you know, when you're in a mall and you're like, am I in the store? I don't know anymore. Everything's just like open space, open concept. I don't know if things are just changing because of aesthetics, but um, I can't find the people. And it, there's just like this very casual atmosphere where people are walking around and not necessarily greeting you right at the front. Like I'm, I'm used to at certain retails. And um, I just, you know, tap around with my cane until I find somebody, but it's become very exhausting, uh. Dave. And you know how I hate shopping. So yeah, I'm moving on. <laughs> to <laughs> delivery services. Oh my gosh, you see, Ramya's, Ramya's been reformed just like that. Enough pet peeves <laughs> and Ramya's been reformed. Alex, you got less than 30 seconds on this, but your biggest pet peeve in stores. Oh, it, it's uh, self-checkouts because they never really work for me. And uh, Dave, just quick update. Since the uh, ID story broke, the Ford government announced that they will be canceling that pilot project. So a bit of breaking news that slipped past me when I first uh, came across this story. Okay, they mooted our entire conversation. A great way, wow. to, la a great way to end the show. <laughs> Alex, thank you for this. Ramya, thank you as well. See you both a little bit later today as part of the big lunch at AMI, although I think I'm going to be sitting by myself, sort of typical standard life of Dave Brown, all alone. But you won't be all alone if you tune in tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the mighty airwaves of AMI-TV. The gang will be back together to chat with you. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.